You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and later in the show, I'll be joined by my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko, but we're going to start off with a very interesting discussion with Aidan Campbell of Mahan and Company. Um, Aidan is an immigration and refugee lawyer uh, that I have worked with here. They have also helped with uh, some of my clients who are dealing with immigration issues and needing an opinion, and they're an excellent immigration lawyer who knows a lot about things to deal with for people facing impaired driving and driving charges, the impacts of some of the legislative changes, and how those have been playing out for individuals who are facing driving charges and potential convictions and their potential removal from Canada. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Aidan Campbell. Thank you, Aidan, for agreeing to join me on the podcast. How are you doing? Happy to be here. Okay. I uh, am a little bit um, feeling the COVID blues, but all in all, pretty good. Fair enough. Head yeah. above water. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's all you really need. Um, I was hoping you and I could spend a minute talking about what immigration rules apply to people who are facing various driving charges, because it's, even for me, incredibly confusing, and I'm not sure I fully understand it all. I think there's sort of like three buckets to think about. Um, when considering uh, driving offenses and immigration status. There's uh, offenses like related to driving that can lead to immigration problems. Mm-hmm. Um, Canadian offenses committed in Canada. Mm-hmm. There are non-driving... <laughs> um, oh, then I guess then there's offenses related to driving committed abroad that screw up your immigration kind of come into Canada. And maybe it's only two. I I should take that back. It's really two issues. Um, But I would split the Canadian offenses into two groups. That is sort of provincial motor vehicle act offenses that don't normally rise to the level of causing any immigration issues. So like prohibited driving -driving traffic tickets. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then non-driving stuff. And then DUIs, in my head, sort of bridge the gap, where right. those are criminal offenses that happen while you're driving but aren't really about the driving, they're about the intoxication. <laughs> okay, all right. So let's just start with the the provincial driving-related offenses, um, like driving while prohibited charges. A lot of people are here on licenses from foreign jurisdictions, they get suspended because they're not complying with the requirements for their foreign jurisdiction licenses, and then they drive during their suspension because they don't realize that even though they might hold a valid license from India or China or Brazil or wherever, uh, that their driving privileges aren't valid in BC. Can somebody who's convicted of a driving while prohibited offense end up deported? 
depends. If, and this is answered like a lawyer. <laughs> ask you about because I have seen this happen where, and I don't know driving law well enough to know when something escalates from a motor vehicle act offense to a criminal code offense. For it to cause you any immigration problems, it needs to be a federal offense. It doesn't matter how heinous the criminal or the provincial conduct is. If it's not a federal offense, the federal immigration bureaucracy does not care by statute. Okay. Well, that's like a, just a very helpful way to know. If you're not charged under a federal statute, you can't be deported for it. Exactly. And it's uh, that's just very clear in the Immigration Act and something that I feel like people get confused about. We have There's interesting stuff like poaching and other wildlife offenses because they're provincial never lead to uh, immigration consequences. Whereas cruelty to animals, which sometimes can go hand in hand with a wildlife offense charge, though not usually, um, does lead to criminal inadmissibility to Canada. Maybe it's worth backing up. And what we're talking about when we're talking about immigration problems is, in this case, generally just criminal inadmissibility to Canada. Mm-hmm. And that breaks down into uh, serious criminality, which is any offense with a sentence of 10 years or over as the maximum penalty, um, or sentences for which you've been given uh six months or more, or more than six months, more than six months in this case. I can never remember which way the thing goes, and I'm not looking at the statute. But there's one that's six months or more, and there's one that's more than six months, and it's very confusing. Yep. Um. And I look it up every single time, because I never want to be wrong. Um, but in any case, that's serious crime. If you're a permanent resident, that's all you have to worry about permanent residence, if you already have status, you can only lose it for serious criminality. So Temporary residents, on the other hand, can lose their status for criminality simpliciter, or people trying to come in can be barred from Canada for simple criminality. And that's uh, just any other criminal code offense that uh, is prosecutable by indictment, so hybrid offenses and indictable offenses. And and for our listeners, all driving offenses in the criminal code are all hybrid offenses, and so therefore are presumed indictable. Under the Immigration Act, yeah. We we just decide if it could ever be. doesn't matter what the practice of any of the Crown offices is. Uh, There are offenses that I'm sure you never see prosecuted by indictment, but for immigration purposes, it does not matter. If there's a deeming provision, uh, it's going to cause you problems. Now, if the Crown makes an election in your specific case, does that change it for the purposes of immigration? does not matter, unfortunately. Wow. Deemed offenses are deemed offenses. So it's, if it's a hybrid, it's considered indictable, and it could lead to immigration issues. That is fascinating. Because there's circumstances where, if it's prosecuted by indictment, the penalty is greater than if it's prosecuted by um, summary proceeding, and it wouldn't fall into that serious criminality Definitely. if prosecuted summarily. The way that's been interpreted is you the deeming of provision applies first, and then they look at the uh, the maximum penalty. 
So you have to look at the maximum penalty as though it were prosecuted by indictment, even if it's not. Fascinating. Wow. And seemingly completely unfair. For it. <laughs> How is that fair, though? It is. There are some places in the Immigration Act that have room for equitable relief. Uh, the determination of whether or not you are seri- uh, inadmissible to Canada is not one of them. You can appeal in some cases, which we'll get into, but all of these are very hard and fast rules. And when you are summoned to an inadmissibility hearing for a conviction that has been entered in Canada, the hearings are about five minutes long. Was there a conviction? Are you not a citizen? Yes. Was there a conviction? Yes. (laughs) You are inadmissible to Canada. And that's it. And it's over in five minutes. And then in some cases, you have a right of appeal, where then you can get into fairness and equity and humanitarian and compassionate consideration, as we call it in the immigration world. So in what circumstances would you have a right of appeal? So you have a right of appeal if you are seriously criminally inadmissible, but you don't serve a sentence of longer, a carceral sentence of longer than six months. So you get convicted of a first impaired driving offense, presumptively indictable, potential penalty, 10 years, Yeah. never going to serve a day in jail because you're going to get the mandatory minimum like everybody else yeah. and get a year-long driving prohibition and a fine, and you can appeal in that circumstance. Yes. Uh, the other, sorry, I should have said there is an interim step where... When CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency, is notified of your criminal conviction, mm-hmm. they can elect not to refer you to the Immigration Division, which actually makes the determination on inadmissibility. So that kind of summary process of finding somebody inadmissible to Canada mm-hmm. um, only takes place if the Border Services officer or minister's delegate decides that it's worth trying to kick you out of Canada. And as I understand it, unless there are exacerbating circumstances, it isn't happening that often for drunk driving, especially because the um, the rule change is so recent, but it's still unsure. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't hold on to that because again, it's, it's discretionary on the part of the officer reviewing the file. Um, that is the other one you already brought up, the, the recent change to the severity of the maximum penalty for impaired driving, which came in along with the Cannabis Act, mm-hmm. um, really screwed up the immigration consequences of uh, driving under the influence of tensions. Now, can you, when you're dealing with that discretionary level of, of just referring it for an inadmissibility hearing... Can you make submissions to the person exercising that discretion? Yes. So they have a course of practice of issuing what's called a procedural fairness letter, which is basically inviting <laughs> your submissions on exactly that point. Like, are there mitigating factors that say that we should allow you to stay in Canada um, and not refer you to inadmissibility proceedings? So somebody could hire a lawyer like you to say, hey, don't refer me. It's- this is why I think that criminal lawyers need to get in the practice of bringing on immigration counsel very early in the process because setting up for this, if you know you're pleading guilty to something or if you know that you're likely to be found guilty mm-hmm. at trial of an offense, 
that has potential immigration consequences. You want somebody paying attention to that from the beginning and making sure that you're doing everything you can to minimize the fallout on the immigration side. Can you provide some evidence that came out at trial, like evidence of charter breaches, things like that, to help sway the decision? What is it that they They look at? They don't care that much about the criminal procedure stuff. I don't think CDFA uh, has cavalier as they are with searches in their own world. Um, (laughs) I haven't seen those kind of arguments. What they're looking for is more, how long have you been in Canada? What are your ties to the country? How well established are you? Do you speaking? Do you speak one of the official languages? Um, how rooted are you in this community? And then, what's the hardship if you were to be returned to um, your home country? Right. So, so if you're like it, eighteen, it's your first offense. You've never really lived outside Canada, and you've you've been here since you were four, but you've never gotten yeah. citizenship. Yeah, those kind of cases, they do pursue them. There are many cases where they pursue I have a number of clients who are childhood arrivals, no criminal record, well into adulthood, and have a couple of bad years or one bad night, and they do try to get rid of them. And it's really, really frustrating. It's some of the most heartbreaking stuff in my practice. Are these people who are in Canada for reasons completely outside of their own control, never had citizenship, never applied for citizenship, never really in many cases understood that they needed to because they'd been here so long and had never had it come up as an issue. Um, And then are in the process of fighting removal um, or being removed in some cases uh, because of a criminal offense. My heart would break every day doing what you do. It's uh, frustrating, again, especially because of the lack of discretion in the rules and the discretion kind of lying in these discrete instances where you just need one person to agree with you. You just need this one miniature delegate to be in a good mood and decide, you know what, we don't need to get rid of this guy. Or, and the same thing goes uh, down the line at the Immigration Appeal Division. There it's a bit more formal. There you can make more formal oral submissions. You can interview, you have your client in the room or now over Zoom, um, <laughs> but you they have to look your client in the eye and say, no, you're going home, whereas the minister's delegate submissions, you're just sending in paper and your your client is just a number on a pile. Um, and it's unclear the extent to which they really uh, pay heed. I should say they do look at the circumstances of the offenses. They really, really do care about the, what happened on the ground. And so the the thing that you can do, the, the benefit you can do is making sure that the agreed statement of facts isn't unnecessary, unnecessarily prejudicial to the immigration side, which is just in, in all criminal practice. It just heightened the, the admissions of conduct um, become way more relevant to potential immigration fallout. So um, things that I think people are used to admitting to. Uh, are maybe uh, bad <laughs> are worth are worth pushing back against. Um, it's worth attending to how much you need to actually admit to admit to the to, to plead guilty to the offense. And would you recommend that people who are dealing with circumstances where there's an agreed statement of facts that they run that agreed statement of facts by an immigration lawyer first before getting? Yeah, I would definitely say that. Um, 
often we wouldn't have that much input, but it, other than like try to get that out, try to get that out, see if you can avoid saying that. Yep. Anything that paints your client in a quote unquote bad light, it's just all of a sudden the the spin of how those statements of facts are written becomes very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's just really, I think, any non-citizen moving through the criminal or even just suspected of being charged criminally should probably start talking to an immigration lawyer. It's obviously expensive to have two lawyers instead of one. But if you think of the value of your permanent resident card and your ability to remain in Canada, it is really, really worth it. You don't like you don't want to be in a situation like many of my legal aid clients are who get a letter while they're in jail and it's the first they hear about the fact that they could get deported. I mean, obviously, all criminal lawyers should be informing their non-citizen clients of the, any potential immigration consequences under um, Wong and Pham and all the other cases, which I, I did is see very you, important. You but just won a big case. Not. You just won a very big case at the BC Court of Appeal. Where I you... may want an extension of time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so it... that one's still ongoing, so I probably shouldn't talk about it. You got Here's the extension, not. though, after yeah, a very we're... long I'm period of time. Currently challenging it more than decade-old guilty plea on Wong grounds and uh, for a man who has had subsequent criminal convictions which reopened uh, the immigration process. He, in this case, won at that early stage of discretion where they said, oh, no, we won't deport you. We won't refer you to inadmissibility proceedings back in uh, 2010. And then some subsequent stuff happened that are not themselves the basis for immigration proceedings, although they could be. They opted to just reopen that old one. So even if you win at that minister's delegate stage, they can reopen that file for any reason down the line. They can always later decide to refer you, even if you don't have later criminal convictions, even if it's just there is some suspicion of criminality down the line. They can decide to reopen it. Wow. They re- receive any, the, the letter, the wording in the letters that they send is any adverse information that is, I haven't seen this in my own practice, but I imagine gang affiliation, suspects in criminal investigations where you're not going to end up charged, but you end up adjacent to things. All of that could lead to one of these Section 44 reports being reopened. Wow. Okay. So if you do get them to exercise the discretion in your favor, stay squeaky it clean does hang forever. Over you forever. Wow. Okay. So what about people who are not Canadian citizens who have committed offenses outside Canada and want to come take their family to Banff for the weekend? So this, you know, was a much larger part of my practice uh, prior to COVID, and I haven't had a lot of referrals for people stopped at the border. Right. Lately, uh, but it definitely does come up. Uh, criminal inadmissibility is assessed not just for people who are in Canada already or who have status in Canada, but for people who are trying to come into Canada. Uh, there are a number, again, because uh, intoxicated driving or driving under the influence or whatever the state calls it um, used to be non-serious criminality. There, it was easier to cross the border if you had a DUI in the U.S. Yes. Um, really, this I'm putting it in the American context because most of the time people are worried about driving under the influence 
issues its Americans. It does still apply to people coming from anywhere else. Um, but as I understand it, a lot of the world doesn't record DUIs as criminal convictions, and so it doesn't come up as much. You still would have to disclose it if asked, um, but it seems like it's not popping up for people as much. Maybe you'd know more about that being an international uh, driving law lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know for my American colleagues, it becomes an issue based on how the matter is dealt with. So, for example, if somebody is convicted of what's colloquially referred to as a wet reckless, so basically careless driving with alcohol in their body, Um, it becomes a matter of an individual CBSA officer's discretion whether that's equivalent to impaired driving or equivalent to driving without due care and attention under a provincial statute. And generally, I understand that, and again, I don't do a lot of this sort of people coming into Canada work. Most of my practice is domestic refugee claims and fighting removal from Canada. So I don't want to talk too much out of school. I've done a number of criminal rehabilitation applications, but I don't, I'm not as familiar with day-to-day practice at the border. Um, but as I understand it, the general sense is that those quote-unquote, wet and reckless, are, are generally deemed as equivalent to um, a provincial driving offense and don't cause criminal inadmissibility. But I'm not sure that's always the case uh, because, again, there aren't, they're not going over a rule book. They're just making a one-off discretionary decision about the conduct leading to the offense and whether or not that is equivalent to the Canadian offense of driving under the influence or if it's equivalent to some lesser provincial offense. And people can hire a lawyer like you or like me or someone from our office to write a letter explaining the equivalency if they're concerned, like you relating certainly it. can. <laughs> um, that I haven't done in the case of, of driving offenses. I've done that for other stranger criminal <laughs> offenses. Um, but certainly those can be, they will be considered by a, a border services officer Um, Whether or not they listen to your lawyer is always another question, Um, but it can definitely go a long way. And it raises the stakes because you can always judicially review uh, an officer's exercise of discretion. And if if the, the submission to that officer was more formal and had more legal information, their reasons for refusing your application have to attend to um, the application that you made. And so having that formal letter, if you do run into problems down the line, even if they say no, it is useful and gives you more options for being able to fight that decision. Because once you're turned away, once you're told you're inadmissible, you have to fight it. You can't just drive back the next day and be like, can I be, inadmi- can I be admissible today? Yeah, no, a finding of, you would only be able to come in. You're, once you're deemed inadmissible, you can only come in if you make a criminal rehabilitation application. And what does that look like? That is, a, a, again, a formal application to a visa office nearest you um, in the States that goes to New York um, that basically asks that you be allowed entry into Canada despite your criminal conviction because of evidence of rehabilitation. And you can only do that some years after uh, the original offense. Um, there, again, with the increased drunk driving for non-serious criminality, criminality simpliciter, there's a deemed rehabilitation provision for 
serious criminality, there's not. So you always have to make, no matter how old your drunk driving offense is, you still have to make um, these criminal rehabilitation applications. Now, if you had a drunk driving offense in 1982, when it wasn't serious criminality in Canada, is it now serious criminality, even though it predated that section? It is, unfortunately. There's some... Actually, that's one that was an open question when I was last looking at this, and I I would need to go back. Um, I understood that it was going to be retroactive, but I remember there was some policy guidance that came out that maybe they weren't going to do that. Well, it wouldn't be um, fair for all and those again, people who pled guilty. And again, this is my not doing enough <laughs> of this cross-border work to be useful to your listeners. Um. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I, I would say just a, a word of caution to people who are looking at hiring somebody for a cross-border um, admissibility issue you need to hire a lawyer in the country you're seeking admissibility to. You can't hire a lawyer in Washington State to explain why your wet reckless is equivalent to a motor vehicle offense here because it's practicing law in Canada. And vice versa, if you want to go to the United States, you need an American lawyer to do that. I constantly refer people to American lawyers for having them explain what exactly a crime of moral turpitude is <laughs> and why a Canadian with a criminal record should, should be allowed entry into the States. Um, all right. So people who have DUIs may or may not be criminally inadmissible into Canada. But what about dangerous driving? Because you brought up moral turpitude. And my understanding is that that's considered... Um, a crime of moral turpitude in the United States, which gives it, to some extent, some special consideration at the border on people who are entering Canada. Um, Maybe you haven't dealt with a dangerous driving charge before, and I'm just throwing this What is the <laughs> maximum offense for a dangerous driving charge? Again, this is all the, all the things I should have Googled before coming on a driving <laughs> law podcast. Um, I believe it, it... There's no minimum. Oh, see, this is... I should know this. <laughs> I think it's it's 14 years, so it would be serious criminality. Then absolutely, yeah, it's going to cause you problems. Okay. So how dangerous can... driving? Yeah, sorry, I, that, that, yeah, that, those always that's always serious crime, and in some cases, um, you can end up with a real sentence. Unlike, uh, I'm not sure what the the top sentences you've seen in that area are, but I I think that I've seen dangerous driving, um, certainly ones that cause uh, death or injury um, with with pretty considerable sentences. The, I think, leading in the longest sentence would be the Humboldt driver. Yes, exactly. And and that guy guy has been in the news um, because they are seeking his removal from Canada. And... So somebody like him, who, not a citizen, not a PR, they're seeking his removal. He was convicted of dangerous driving. He got a very long sentence. And does he have any avenue of of recourse? From the reporting, and I'm not specific, I I believe not. There are always avenues to fight removal from Canada. Um, However, they become less and less favorable to the person uh, seeking that uh, remedy. There are 
days of removal you can seek. You could, if, you, if you believe that you're in danger in your home country, you can seek what's called a pre-removal risk assessment. But generally, your, your status in Canada is, is vitiated as soon as you're found inadmissible, um, and especially for a, a non-permanent resident. So if you don't have permanent residency status, you're basically hooped. In this case, it doesn't matter, actually, because he doesn't have recourse to the Immigration Appeal Division anyway right. um, because of the, the very long sentence. Um, so there really aren't a lot of good options in that case. And, and if you've been following the reporting on that one, that's sort of what commentators are saying. And that's also one where there'd be no initial discretionary step where somebody looking at it could go, you know, I'm not going to... Oh, there's, there would have been, but from oh. my understanding, again, I, I, I'm not looking at the, the reporting on it, but I, as I understand it, that referral has already taken place. Right. And again, because of uh, the high-profile nature of this, I would not have expected them to have acted otherwise. It's, it's a shame, but this is just how the border services operate. <laughs> Yeah, you're much more jaded than me because my expectation would have been, hasn't he suffered enough? I mean, he pled guilty at the earliest opportunity. He he clearly demonstrated remorse. He's not a risk to the public. Uh, hasn't he suffered enough? I would think so, but that's not how our immigration bureaucracy sees it a lot of the time. So despite criminal law understanding that immigration, collateral immigration consequences are serious. The conception on the immigration side is that these are not punitive measures. They are measures about administering Canada's immigration laws. They are just applying the rules and there isn't a lot of room for um, mushy feelings to get involved. The changes to the seri- so serious criminality used to mirror provincial versus federal sentences mm-hmm. and so we're all pegged to the two-year mark uh the harper government brought in the faster removal of foreign criminals act um which reduced that to six months um or six months plus a day as the like lowest sentence you could get to, to save yourself from summary deportation. Um, And so once that's there, that's it. You're over the line, you're over the line. Wow. But I, you know, I thought the world I dealt with was harsh and unfair, but yours sounds even worse. I I think criminal lawyers are often surprised at the lack of procedural protections and lack of discretion in the Mm -hmm. immigration context. Well, yeah. I mean, if you Um, take something in front of a provincial court judge, you get to, you know, put all the emotion into it. And there's a human judge who's looking at you and looking at your client and listening to your submissions and thinking about how they were treated and thinking about the reputation on the administration of justice in Canada. And all of those things are in the background of the legal decision the judge has to make. So it is a human decision. Yeah, they don't see it as that in the immigration side. The same thing goes with the consider. this is way off topic, but as is oft remarked by refugee law practitioners, the stakes in a refugee claim are really life or death. Yeah, People aren't kidding when they say that they're going to be killed if they go home. Um, and so getting a false negative um, that is 
mistakenly saying that somebody is not a real refugee when they are and then removing them to their home country is insanely dangerous and high stakes. You don't have near the protections that you get if you're on trial for even like a serious gun offense or a or murder. The, the consequences there, you know, you're playing with somebody's, the rest of somebody's life that they could spend in jail. Um, but it's, to my mind, that's less serious than sending someone home to their death. And the the level of public resources that go into maintaining those two systems are woefully different. Well, I didn't think it was possible to get more depressed in 2020. <laughs> I told you, things are... Uh... Things are bleak in my world. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, if somebody's facing bleak consequences and they need help, or if somebody has a client who's not a Canadian citizen and they need advice on the impact of any decision they make on their client, how can they reach you? Um, they can visit our website at mahanlitigation.com and they can send us an email through our contact page. Happy to help anybody... Um, looking to avoid removal from Canada or to understand the immigration consequences of uh, the criminal process that they're being subject to. Well, thank you. Anything you want to add in closing? Um, no, but just uh, stay safe out there, everybody. and Avoid, uh, avoid criminal charges wherever possible. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Aiden, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much, Kyla. Happy to do it. Well, Paul, you missed an exciting discussion about immigration law, and I'm thoroughly depressed. Well, I'll get to listen to it on Friday the 13th. You know, the last time we had a Friday the 13th in 2020 was in March. And look what happened March 2020. Oh, yeah, and it all started right around Friday the 13th. It all went to shit. I think, I, like, I flew to Ohio on the 12th or something. Does this mean, that, like... And that's when the lockdown started. Is it going to be, like, a Freaky Friday situation where if we, like, grab hands and look at each other and go, I wish there was no pandemic, we'd go back in time and there'd be no pandemic? Yeah, I, I'm just curious whether I'm willing or not, to try it. I want to look at when Friday the 13th landed in 1919. <laughs> no. And the Spanish flu went by because maybe there is something to this whole bad luck Friday the 13th thing. And I am not a superstitious person, but I'm starting to wonder. Yeah. Anyway, um, well, I'm glad you're going to be able to listen to this immigration discussion because it's information that you need to know and I need to know and literally every criminal lawyer needs to know so they don't screw That's their clients. It's so frightening every time we get, we learn something like that that you didn't know. Like every time you talk to Scott Wonder about the implications for the FAA for pilots getting mm -hmm. drinking driving offenses and you're thinking to yourself, I never, ever would have advised my client about it, never, never thought, about it. thought about and it. And in the end, you know, you know what I do is I just tell everybody, call Scott Wonder or let me call Scott Wonder Yeah. at this point. But I never thought of it before. No. And now, now, just easy enough. One call more thing Scott. About... He's wonderful. Yeah. So wonderful. They named him Wonder. Exactly. <laughs> in any event, yeah, so I'll listen to it. If it's another one of those situations where I'm going to discover something I didn't know that I should have known, um, I will be yes. I will be upset. But, you know, I might as well be upset on Friday the 13th. There's lots that's upsetting. Well, let's talk about some of these new restrictions imposed in British Columbia to try sure. to deal with our pandemic. Yeah, you can't leave the... Um, 
can't leave the, your health authority. Your health authority. So if, I can't drive to Burnaby, even though I'm on the Vancouver Burnaby border. I thought it was okay to leave your um, your health authority, but you couldn't leave those two health authorities. I thought you no. could go from Vancouver Coastal to nope. Fraser. You can't go from one health authority to the other. Oh well, fascinating. Then anybody who is is um, unless you know, you're traveling for essential purposes, or like for the work. purpose of work, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you can go for work. So you can't. But I can't go to Metro Town. How? Huh. Well, I mean, why would I? <laughs> never, never go to Metro Town. I go to Metro. My bank is at Metro Town. My main branch for my bank is at Metro Town. Well, that's your that's your mistake. That's <laughs> yeah. your error. Anyway, so oh, okay, that's interesting. I did not know that. So um, you know, I just drove to Richmond. Uh, I did it for work. Right, but, but Richmond is in the Vancouver Health Authority. Is it? I yes. think it's Fraser, isn't it? No. No, okay. Delta is right. Fraser. Burnaby so don't is drive Fraser. any further. Don't drive to Delta unless it's for work. Well, I have no reason to go to any of those locations. But what happens if you do? Like, what happens? The government, you're driving your car. Yeah. Right? And you're driving for pleasure purposes. You decide to go to Metrotown. And you have an accident outside of Metrotown. And ICBC finds out that you were violating a... In, uh, instruction, a rule laid down during a pandemic by Bonnie Henry, you have violated the law. Yeah. Do you still have insurance on your car? Well, this is an open question. And I think, looking at it, the answer would be no. Because if you're using your car as an instrument to commit an offense, and it doesn't matter whether it's a criminal offense or whether it's a violating a public health order... You're using a car as an instrument to commit an offense and actually technically is a criminal offense to violate a provincial health order. There's a criminal, there's a federal provision for that. I've not looked into it. Yes. Would they ever do it? Probably not because it would be very difficult to prove. And they would also remember, you know, if you're in breach, they have to prove that you're in breach, right? So they would also have to prove that you weren't traveling for an essential purpose. Um, so and this is an occasion where you want to be saying I was traveling for work, even though lots of people don't want to be saying well, that they're traveling for work in their car, or if they are, look, you're, if you're only allowed a few times a month that you're allowed to drive your car for work unless you've insured it for that purpose. If I get in this accident at outside Metro Town, and maybe I was there because there was a really great sale at Winners, and also the ramen place I like is right in Metro Town, um, oh, so now you're talking up Metrotown. A minute ago, you were dissing Metrotown. I don't have any reason to diss Metrotown other than I'm not going to a mall unless I have to in a pandemic. Okay. Anyway. So, you know, I want to go to the sale at Winners and then I want to get a bowl of ramen. But if I stop by my bank, it's essential travel because I'm conducting business. Oh, okay. So you could just basically turn it into essential travel well, by they... going to your bank They'd have to prove that you weren't doing essential travel. Well, I don't think they would ever do it. I don't think they would breach people in those circumstances, but there's lots of times... Unless it was egregious. Well, the thing is, there's lots of times ICBC is looking for a reason to breach you. So they think Mm -hmm. you've been drinking and driving. They know it's difficult for them to prove that it was Mm -hmm. a a drinking-driving related accident. They look to breach you, as, you know, Roy has pointed out, by catching you in a lie... Um, the same way that uh, every all those people who were uh, lied to the FBI who were connected to Trump ended up in jail. Uh, they didn't end up in jail for substantive offenses. They ended up in jail for lying to the FBI. Um, and that's a fairly common thing. And so ICBC does the same thing. They're looking for the lie because they can breach you on the lie. So there may be circumstances where, you know, that's an, an easier breach than a drinking driving case, that you're, you're breaking the law using your car. 
I mean, you're breaking the law every time you're speeding and you're using Let me your ask car. you this, though. If it's possible that it's a breach because you drive your car to the health authority you're not supposed to go to, what if you're in an accident and you've got four other people in your car, none of whom are in your household, when the order right now restricts you to only being with your household members? Or maybe you've all got COVID and you're supposed to be at home isolating and Look, you drive to another health district. We've dealt with several cases of people who were out driving around after positive COVID after, diagnosis. Af, yeah. After positive COVID tests. So yeah, no, it's a, and you're supposed to that, that in itself. Okay. Just driving around, you have an accident, you have a COVID diagnosis. Um, you're supposed to be at home self-isolating. You're supposed to be quarantined. Quarantined. You're breaking the Under law. the federal quarantine act. Yeah. You're blatantly breaking a federal law at that point. Hmm. Anyway, uh, I don't want to give ICBC any ideas. It was somebody on Twitter. <laughs> I'm sure they're somebody not Somebody on Twitter sent me a headline that suggested that out of the UK. And I looked at the, uh, at the article and it wasn't as clear as the headline, but it got me thinking. And uh, that's why we decided we should talk about this. Might be something you want to talk about with Roy, but wait until somebody, <laughs> wait, wait until, until somebody phones you charged, up yeah. and says, ooh, I uh, got a bit of a problem. All right. So ridiculous driver of the week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Oh, how much driving though in this one, if this is the one I'm thinking of? Yeah, I mean, he's not really a driver. He's more like a ridiculous marketer of the week. And I'm using cars to market. Yeah, it's just, it's car adjacent, but I think that's fine. You know, I make the rules. (laughs) Your um, podcast. It's my podcast. And I like this story because it involves a designer that I really, really like. Okay. So I, I think now for sure I've confirmed that I know what it is. Does it involve a Ferrari? It does. So fashion designer Philip Pline, who makes these gorgeous leather jackets. By the way, Philip Pline, if you're listening to this podcast, um, I will wear your leather jacket around and take lots of Instagram photos in it if you will send me one for free. (laughs) I have like a whole 1,500 followers, none of whom are interested in my style. Um, And I will sell nothing. Um, You never know. But I really want one and I can't afford it. Um, Anyway, he was sued by Ferrari because he was using... Lamborghinis, McLarens, and Ferraris in his, like, fashion shows and in his Instagram posts trying to promote this billionaire lifestyle. Um, And Ferrari was, they were all successful in that. And then Ferrari's like, let's take it one step further and sue him because he used his own Ferrari that he bought and paid for as a backdrop while posting pictures of his products on his personal Instagram account. That is really surprising to me that they were successful. Yeah. Because people do it all the time. Like, I'm actually kind of on Philip Klein's side here. Ferrari is the ridiculous driver, in my opinion. Well, I mean, I, I... The whole idea with Ferrari is you buy the Ferrari, you want to use it to be seen. I mean, it's half the time people are buying it. They're not, like, super drivers who desperately want to have the experience of motoring down the motorway in a Ferrari, they buy it because they think they're going to be seen in the Ferrari. Yeah. And, and also, it's going to enhance their their perception of them. 
Like, if you own a statement car, and I say this to you as a person who owns two statement cars, three, well, you and I own one together, but um, don't you knock the Monte Carlo. Uh, Monte. <laughs> um, you know, if you're a person who owns a car like that, of course you're going to put pictures of it on your social media. Of course you're going to show. How many, how many pictures of your green truck are there on your social media pages? Yeah, is uh, Chevy going to come back and try and sue me? For appropriating the goodwill and tarnishing the reputation of Chevy by using it to promote your drunk driving business. Yeah, well, let's hope they don't. Um, (laughs) Dear Chevy, if you're listening, please don't sue Paul. You would have a lot of people to sue. You'd also have a lot of people who are pissed off. And I'll tell you, uh, this decision, if they try and use it in other jurisdictions, is going to be a problem because a lot, a lot, a lot of people use their high-end supercars to enhance their image in this way, to yep. market the rest of their products or, you know. Yep. Um, you know, and, we all know that, that famous meme of Kim Kardashian going, you know, I, I I bought a Bentley and you're trying to ruin my moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, or, or uh, Paris Hilton. Do you remember her? Yes, I remember yeah, Paris Hilton. She's, she's she hasn't like been around age. in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, she had like a pink uh, Bugatti or something like that. I like all of these... People with their silly cars, um, you know, some of them are are using them in, in marketing their products. She had all sorts of different products that she marketed, and it was yep. a connection to her product. And I mean, you... it's pretty loosely connected at that point, but it's just the lifestyle thing. Like, you, at which point, it's, she's not selling. Like, she's not saying, I'm selling. He's not saying, I'm selling Ferraris. Well, he did create a shoe design that intentionally mimicked the color of his Ferrari, but you don't own a copyright on a color. Yeah, you you can copyright a color. You can trademark well, the color. Ferrari didn't trademark the color. It wasn't a trademark lawsuit for taking the color. No. Um, and but, it's it's the Ferrari same green as Ferrari your green red. truck. Well, I don't know that it's precisely that green. That green is, is green. Well, you can only see one shade of green. That's so. true. I'm colorblind. I, I, <laughs> They're I still, all the same to I, you. To me, it still looks yellow. Uh, <laughs> it's green. It's live green. Uh, so I'm told. Anyway, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, one person would view it as marketing. The other person would view it as just a guy doing his lifestyle. Well, and think about and it. And if it's marketing, like, where's the where where's is the, the line? Well, where's the line? And where is the where is the click to sell? You know, he's not clicking to sell the Ferrari. Um, You know, can you not take pictures of yourself in your house because they might see your Mila dishwasher or something like that? Or like, you know, the architect who designed your house might be offended. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it does get to the point where like call marketing, marketing. If they're trying to, if the, if there's a pitch to sell and they're selling you the product that's pitched to sell, then that's marketing. There's lots of other things that are just image creation. As the president of a marketing company there i can you tell you that is the internationally accepted definition of marketing is with the pitch to sell yeah yeah well yeah. And it arises from albert lasker's um recording of the conversation he had with the fellow in the who he invited up from the bar yeah. who said you want to know what marketing is and it's salesmanship in print yeah now it's salespersonship in various different ways but it's still <laughs> the idea is to connect that um, to the sale. And the other thing that this makes me think about is what about all those people who buy a car and then they put decals for their business on their car? Like we have the smart car with the Acumen branding on it. 
Well, there. all we have now is the the uh, web address on the back, but we used to. Okay. Well, yeah, I know. Still, and you, you, there's all sorts of people out there. You drive buy around. their new Chevy truck, and then they brand mm-hmm. it up for their contracting firm. Are they now using that vehicle and capitalizing on the goodwill of their good-looking brand new Chevy truck to? market their contracting firm and is chevy gonna come back after all those little people like it's easy to not feel bad for philip klein because like you know he's a billionaire and lucky for him or whatever but like this affects the little guy too oh i know it's like the the broad application of this is really actually kind of frightening it's disturbing Uh, where did they sue where what what was the jurisdiction europe because it was the award was in euros um I would I assume it would be in Italy. Well, if it's in Italy, it's not going to have a broad application outside of Italy, one would think. But even in Italy, the chilling effect is enough. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, what happens if in your ad campaign, say an actual ad campaign where you're trying to sell something, you're not trying to sell Vespas, but you're trying to sell the shoes the person's wearing riding the Vespa um, because you're going to look good in your Vespa, which is a, you know, broadly driven vehicle yep. scooter um is this the end of vespas being an, and you know and if you're i mean ferrari may say to themselves you know what i don't want to be connected with what's his name philip klein philip klein Pline or klein Pline. Pline. never heard of him uh i'm sure he's a lovely man um ferrari may say they don't want to be connected with him but there's lots of things that they're probably more than happy to be connected with and there's some that they they pay to be connected with like shell mm-hmm. um but you know you kind of once you produce a product, you got to kind of expect that it's going to go out there into the world and it's going to have its own thing. Oh, yeah. Kyle's just showing... showing me a picture. I, I don't like that jacket. Oh, it's got studs. It's got It's itching. terrible. It's a, yeah, that's a waste of that's a waste over the energy. Top. That's over the top. <laughs> that's why I like it. Maybe They're like $13,000 each. Maybe you can have it posted on the Twitter account for... Philip Pline, if you send me a jacket, I will take pictures of your jacket in all sorts of places that I own that you won't be You can take them in front of my Chevy. I'll take them. We'll take the risk. In front of Paul's Chevy. I'll take them in front of my dog. He's very cute. He won't sue. Okay, you're you're pushing it now, Kyle. He's not listening to this. He's not listening to this. (laughs) And your listeners on your podcast are now checking out. So that's the uh, end of the podcast. That is the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on for eight minutes at the end of your podcast. I appreciated driving out here for this in the pouring, pouring rain. We have other projects going on right now that we're finishing up. I know. I know. I'm just having fun with you. Happy Friday the 13th, everybody. Good luck out there. And if you need to get a hold of us, find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 